you won't know this, but I was brought up in what can only be described as a bit of a geeky household. As a teenager, I would often come down the stairs and my younger brother and my dad would be glued to the TV and the words coming out of the television were these. Space. The final frontier. <laughs> These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Inspired the mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. We are, of course, in the world of Star Trek, aren't we? And, um, you know, Star Trek, Kirk and the crew, they go around uh, the universe and they've got all the tools they need to explore it. So they've got this massive spaceship called the USS Enterprise. Um, they've got those tight 1960s uniforms on. Uh, they've got little intercoms, Scotty's beaming people up and down. Um, they've even got sun guns um, and dilithium crystals, which can send you uh, into warp speed. They've got all the tools they need to explore the Star Wars universe. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we meet a man called the Preacher. And he's made it his life's mission to explore the world in which he lives, our world. He's trying to make sense of it all. To find some sort of answer, to find some sort of fulfilment in the world in which he lives. And this book's well equipped, isn't it? Like the cast of Star Trek, he seems to have unlimited resources. He's got wealth, he's got power, he's got authority, and he's got a good brain, he's got the smarts. He's got enough intelligence to analyse everything that he sees and experiences. If we were going to turn his search into a 1960s TV show, I think the opening spiel would be chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. So look back at 12 to 13 of chapter 1. He says this, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. So we might think, well, this is going to be great, isn't it? This is going to be an amazing, fun-filled adventure as he travels around the empire looking for meaning and fulfilment. We're going to hear some great tales. It's going to be fantastic. But actually, the opening verses of chapter 1, the preacher bursts his own bubble. So look at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything goes round in circles. That's the basic message of chapter 1. Now, we think vanity, perhaps we think of a vain teenage girl uh, doing her selfies on Instagram and she's always checking her, the mirror to make sure she looks good enough. But vanity is not a great translation of the original Hebrew word. If you've got an NIV, that translates the word meaningless, but there is meaning in life, so that, that doesn't do it justice either. The original Hebrew word is a word called chabel. I'm probably saying it wrong because I'm not Hebrew. Uh, but the Hebrew word has the sense of something being fleetingly brief. Something like a, a vapour. So we live in England, in London. We're all 
very aware of fog, aren't we? It gets to November and suddenly fog descends. I remember the first time I ever saw fog as a young kid. I was about six. I came out of church uh, one morning and there was just this white cloud everywhere. And it was amazing. It was magical. We all have a bit of fog. And my six-year-old self thought, I'm going to run over there and I'm going to hide in the fog. So off I ran. But of course, as soon as I got to the other side of the road, the fog had moved on. I wasn't in, I thought I was in the fog, but I wasn't. You can't grab hold of fog, can you? You can't give fog a hug. And that's how the preacher talks about life. Life promises so much, it's got a lot to offer, but when you get it, you can't grasp it, you can't enjoy it. It's like a vapour, it's fleetingly brief. So think of vapour, think of steam from a kettle. Now, as soon as you kill the world, the steam comes out, and, and before long, it's gone. A, a few seconds. And look at the second part of chapter 1, verse 13. He says this, This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, by which we may be exercised. Looking in to the way this life operates had made the preacher miserable. He found it a burden. So this will cheer on a Sunday night. But we're going to join him in episode 2 then of his voice, chapter 2. And we can sum the whole chapter up like this. The preacher seeks fulfilment in pleasure, wisdom and hard work, but he finds none. Alright, so we've got five points. Don't worry, they're not too long. Five points, we'll draw our lessons as we go. Point number one, the preacher seeks fulfilment in pleasure, verses 1 to 11. So in chapter 1, the preacher's looking outwards into the world, um, and he sees the futility of living life under the sun. He concluded that everything was vanity. That's his hypothesis, right? But now he wants to test his hypothesis. So he says in his heart, I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with myrrh, that's amusement. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. So he assessed the outside world and decided it's vanity, but perhaps on a personal level, he can find fulfilment and meaning in the things this world has to offer. So his big plan is that he's going to make himself into a human guinea pig. He's going to be the test subject, and he's, he's in for a good ride. He's going to test himself with pleasure. But he instantly gives us his conclusion, doesn't he? Look at the end of verse 1. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and mirth. What does it accomplish? Then the preacher tells us how he reached his conclusion. What did his test look like? Well, look at verse 3. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. So the preacher says to himself, I'm going to go on a pleasure binge. I'm going to indulge in every good thing I can imagine. So in verse 4 to 6, he builds himself mansions, brand new houses, and he plants vineyards, and he plants fruit trees, and he hires the best landscape gardeners money can buy. And they build in plants, and they plant forests, 
and they instill beautiful fountains and water features. He imports tree saplings from all over the Middle East and he fills his plant pots with the most exotic flora he can get his hands on. No one has ever seen anything as gorgeous as this. He's got beautiful gardens, beautiful mansions. It's breathtaking in its scale and its scope. And then in verses 7 to 8, the preacher exploits the riches of his empire. He brings in the best slaves money can buy to advise him and serve him and give him a life of ease. He's got more herds and more flocks, more possessions and more singers, and more gold than anyone else. In fact, he considers himself to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Verse 7 and 9, he says, No king in Jerusalem ever had as much as I had. And the preacher goes where other men can't. In verse 8 he says, he enjoyed the special treasures of kings. He starts a concubine collection. So he gets women from all over the empire to please him. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labour. And this was my reward from all my labour. Well, a preacher seems to be living the dream, doesn't he? In fact, most shockingly for his original hearers, if you were hearing this at the time, he's living the covenant dream. He's experiencing the covenant blessings that God had promised the children of Israel in the law of Moses. So listen to what Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy 28, verse 2. He says this, All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, that means you have lots of kids, and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. So the preacher should be on top of the world, shouldn't he? He's experiencing all of the things that people both ancient and modern think will bring them fulfilment. But now look at verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labour in which I had toiled. And indeed all was vanity, and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. This is a devastating conclusion, isn't it? And it's devastating in particular for our society, I think. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, I think capitalism is great, okay? There's no system under which I'd rather live. It brings a lot of good things with it. Stability, democracy, technological advancement. Um, across the board, it has raised people's living standards. But capitalism cannot deliver the one thing it promises, can it? It cannot deliver fulfilment. So what do corporations promise their consumers? Well, they claim that their latest product is going to be the thing that changes your life. So buy our new car, wear our new aftershave, get our latest phone, save up for that exotic holiday, build that extension on your house and buy Botox for your wife, and that will make you happy. Then you will be content. And this is what 
the world is all about, isn't it? And even we as Christians fall into this trap. We tell ourselves, if only I had a little bit more money, if only I could get rid of the Vauxhall and get BMW or something, if only I could have a slightly bigger house, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be at peace. I could relax then. But Christian friend, that's a lie. It won't make you any happier. And that's a real puzzle, isn't it? Most people presume that the bad things that happen to them in their life, the tragedies, the challenges that they face, they think that's what's going to make them depressed. And sometimes that is what happens. But a bigger puzzle is why doesn't the good stuff make it all better? Why is it that getting everything I wanted, everything I thought I needed, how comes that also leaves me feeling depressed? guy called Ian Golding and Chris Katana, they are professors in something called globalisation and development. Listen to what they said in a paper published in 2016. They say this, now is the best time to be alive. Angry voices will loudly deny this, but that doesn't make it any less true. Life expectancy has risen by more in the past 50 years than in the previous 1,000. Incomes are increasing around the globe. For the first time in history, poverty is declining amid rapid population growth. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, two-fifths of humanity lived in extreme poverty. Now it's one-eighth. More people can afford an education. The number of people alive now with an advanced degree exceeds the total number of degrees ever awarded prior to 1980. That's the year I was born. With a few tragic exceptions, a child born almost anywhere today can expect to grow up healthier, wealthier, and smarter than at any other time in history. Science and technology jumped by humanity's sharp jumping cognitive resources has never been closer to flipping our basic condition from scarcity to abundance. Humanity as a whole has never climbed so high, so fast. If you could choose to be reborn at any moment in history, you should choose right now. As far as human beings are concerned, as a Prime Minister once said, we've never had it so good. We've never progressed so far and so fast. We've never had so much stuff. And therefore, our society should be the happiest society in history, right? But we know that's not the case. In fact, poor mental health amongst children and young people in the UK has been described as an epidemic, an escalating crisis. With teenagers in particular in increasing numbers self-harming and sadly committing suicide. Suicide is the biggest killer of men aged between 40 and 65 in the developed world. And this is in an era when we've never had it so good. Don't believe the lie that getting what you want will make you happy. The statistics show that it doesn't. Freddie Mercury, uh, the lead singer of the rock band Queen said this, You can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. Success has brought me world idolisation and millions of pounds, but it's preventing me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. Jim Carrey, the best-paid Hollywood actor of the 1990s, said this, 
I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. And these are non-Christian men, aren't they? Even they've realised that getting everything you want doesn't work. That's the tragedy of living life under the sun. All of our attempts at pleasure and fulfilment end in failure. Second point, the preacher seeks fulfilment in wisdom, verses 12 to 17. Perhaps he thinks the answer lies in education. So verse 12, I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. A few years back I signed up to YouGov, um, so every so often they send me an email saying, can you do a survey? And I'll click away and answer their questions. Well, perhaps the preacher gathered all of his wise men up and he conducted a survey. Where is your wisdom and your education and your knowledge, where has it gotten you in life? And it seems like good news at the start. So look at verse 13. He says, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So there are benefits to being wise, says the preacher. You can make sense of the world around you. It's better than being in the dark. You can understand how things work and identify patterns. You're not, you're not walking around in ignorance like a fool. But then what does he discover? Well, verses 15 to 17, he says, no matter how wise or well-educated a person may be, they cannot escape death. And even worse, perhaps no one is going to remember them when they're gone. He says, there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. Being a pastor, I spend a lot more time uh, attending funerals, sadly. Um, and sometimes when you get to a funeral early, you, you walk around the cemetery, don't you? And you see thousands of headstones, names and dates, names and dates, here, dates occasional comment. Here lies Fred, beloved husband, father, etc. But in all my years of walking around cemeteries, I've never seen a headstone with someone's GCSE and A-level results on it. I've never seen a headstone that said, Joe Blotz got a 2-1 in engineering at Warwick. Why? Well, because no one cares when you're dead, do they? In every cemetery, you'll get a foolish person and a well-educated person lying side by side. In fact, verse 16, how does a wise man die? Just like the fool. Well, I think there's a warning here for Christian students and Christian parents, and that is, don't make an idol out of your education. Now, look, it's good to get an education, right? Kids, don't start skipping school, right? It's good to get an education so you can get a good job and provide for your future family. But for some Christians, getting educated seems to have completely taken over their lives. So you see them less and less committed to Jesus and more and more committed to their field of study. And sometimes, sadly, Christian parents encourage this. They encourage their kids to, to put their education before anything else. So forget the midweek Bible study or the youth club. No, that essay, which you couldn't be bothered to do in your own time, well, that's more important. So the message I fear 
you get from a lot of Christian parents is prioritise your education. Jesus can wait. Well, look, if you're doing that, Christian parents, if you're telling your kids that the pursuit of worldly wisdom is more important than their spiritual health, well, that is a dangerous message to give to any young person. And the reason is, hell doesn't care if you've got a degree. Hell is home to both the uneducated broke sweeper and the educated Oxford professor. The top half of your CV ain't going to get you into heaven. So by all means, Christian students, work hard at school. Be diligent. Try your utmost to succeed. Don't take what I'm saying as an excuse to be lazy, but never put your studies before your Saviour. Honour him and it will honour you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Third point, the preacher seeks fulfilment in hard work, verses 18 to 23. The preacher reflects on everything he's learned so far. There's no fulfilment in pleasure. There's no fulfilment in wisdom. But what about all the work he's been doing? Was there any profit, any lasting happiness in that? Can he sit back, sigh and say, oh, that was all worth it? And the answer is no. Look at verse 18. Then I hated all my labour in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. This frustration is easy to understand, isn't it? He's built this great empire. He's accumulated all of this wealth. But as soon as he dies, someone else inherits it all. Verse 19. Who knows whether he, the guy who inherits it, will be wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labour in which I toil, and which I've shown myself wise under the sun. It's also his vanity. And there's even more frustration for the preacher as he realises he won't even be able to enjoy all of the things he's worked so hard for. Verse 20. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labour in which I toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labour is with wisdom, knowledge and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not laboured for it. Well, perhaps you're a bit of a workaholic here tonight. And you've been ploughing your energy and your skill into your career. And hopefully you've been good at your job. And perhaps as a result, you've done well. Um, and promotion has followed promotion. Um, and pay rise has followed pay rise. But all of that income that you're bringing in and saving up for retirement or a rainy day... Well, one day that's going to be distributed amongst your relatives, isn't it? And you might say, well, that's fine. You know, I love my kids. I love my relatives. They're nice. But who's to say your kids and your grandkids aren't going to squander every penny you give them? To be frank, your grandkids could be complete idiots, couldn't they? With no money handling skills whatsoever. They could waste all of the money you've earned on booze, drugs and rock and roll. You're the one getting up at 6am in the morning. You're the one who's stressed out all week. You're the one with high blood pressure. You're the one who's stuck on the A2 in traffic, rushing around trying to catch trains and flights, trying to hit deadlines, attending meetings on Zoom. You're doing all the hard graft, and they've done nothing 
and they're going to reap all the rewards and all the benefits. Luke says to the preacher, there is no lasting fulfilment in the toil of this world. Verse 22 and 23. For what is man for his labour and for the striving of his heart with which he is toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful. Now I mentioned this morning that once upon a time I was an employee of Lewisham Council. Uh, I was a primary school teacher. And I wanted to be a good teacher. I wanted to be the type of teacher who changed lives, uh, changed the lives of the kids I taught. But what did I find in my seven-year teaching career? Well, I found verse 23 to be very true. I had a life of anxious grief and pain. I'd been worked off of my feet. Sometimes I'd be in my classroom from 7am to 7pm, planning lessons, marking books. Saturdays I'd still be working. Sometimes I'd be stressed out on a Saturday and Sunday night. I'd be assessing children's levels, filling out forms. I'd be absolutely exhausted. And the pressure was relentless. I dealt with badly behaved kids, badly behaved parents, badly behaved members of staff. I didn't find my employment a joy. I found it crushing. And then when I tried to go to sleep, well, just like the preacher, even in the night, his heart takes no rest. I tried to sleep, but sleep wouldn't come. You ever had this? You desperately want to go to sleep, but your mind's working overtime. You're running through your to-do list. I'm rehearsing conversations I'm going to have with people. I'd lie awake early. In the early hours, anxious about my job. But now, six years on, I can't even remember the names of the kids I've taught. I can walk past former colleagues in the street and I wouldn't even recognise them. I've got USB sticks jammed full of lesson plans and resources I've devoted hours to and I'll never use them again. Do you see, finding lasting fulfilment in your employment it's like chasing after the wind. It will let you down, says the preacher. It's like trying to hug fog. Well, what's the lesson for us here tonight then? Well, look, if you're blessed enough to have a job, we'll be thankful and work hard at it. But again, don't be fools. Don't think that climbing the corporate ladder, getting a bigger income, a nicer office, or a healthier pension pot, is going to be the answer to all your problems. One day, your office cubicle will be occupied by someone else. Your hard-earned cash will be distributed to people who did nothing for it and probably don't deserve it. Well, I told you I've been cheerful. (laughs) We've had three points. It's been a bit grim, hasn't it? We have to ask ourselves, why is life like this? Well, why why is it so depressing? Well, Ecclesiastes is a book that deals with life under the sun. That's the phrase that keeps getting repeated throughout the book. Life under under the sun. That's a life lived almost detached from God. And actually what the author is describing when he describes life under the sun is actually life outside of the garden. See, remember back when God created the earth, he created Adam and Eve, men and women, and he created them a beautiful garden to live in. And it was a perfect garden. It was wonderful. And Adam and Eve could walk with God. They communed with God. And they could expect to live forever. And in Eden, Adam and Eve would have known 
peace and fulfilment, true joy. But then Adam and Eve sinned, didn't they? They disobeyed God's command and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, what happened? Well, they were exiled. They were sentenced to death. And ever since then, we being children of Adam and Eve, we've been living life outside of the garden. And our world outside the garden, life under the sun, has been marked by pain and suffering and death. In fact, do you remember that Hebrew word for vanity? Abel. Well, it sounds like the name Abel, doesn't it? Abel, a play on words. Abel, the second son of Adam. He could have expected to live for a thousand years, but what happens? Well, he's murdered by his brother Cain. His life is cut short. It's fleetingly brief. And we all feel that, don't we? We all feel that life is too short. I was talking to a a good friend of mine um, from secondary school a few days ago, and we're both past 40 now. Um, But we were discussing that internally, we don't feel all that much different to when we were 16. You're fine with young people. I still feel like I'm a 16-year-old inside. I want to jump off stuff when I'm running through the meadows happily. But I can't. Why? Well, because my body is dying on me. It's breaking down. I'm going grey. I'm going deaf. I look in the mirror. I've got a new wrinkle every week. Last time I had an eye test, my optician told me, Mr. Witten, your left eye is now as bad as your right eye. I'm falling apart. Our bodies are falling apart, aren't they? This is life under the sun. This is the reality of living in a world crippled by sin and death. And as a preacher found out, the sums don't add up. Pleasure doesn't work. Wisdom doesn't work. Work doesn't work. Nothing lasts long enough. The juices are worth the squeeze. Fourth point then, a crumb of comfort, verses 24 to 26. The preacher's been backed into a godless corner. But now he starts to fight back a bit. We get a tiny oasis in the desert, so to speak. A few encouraging words. Verse 24. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labour. So Luke says to the preacher, life in this world sucks. It's hard. It's frustrating. So the very best that human being uh, can do is enjoy the good aspects of it. Savour the taste of your food. Uh, Savour the taste of a good steak. Enjoy the warm comfort of a cup of tea. And if you can, he says, find enjoyment in your achievements, if you can. So I do have some fond memories of being a teacher. It wasn't all grim. Uh, There are little oasises of joy there. And I'm sure, however hard or depressing your job is, you can find pleasure in it. God's built that into to men and women to, to enjoy work. There is pleasure and contentment to be found in places in this world, and it's good to pursue it. But you'll only experience true joy when you acknowledge its true source. Did you spot that in verse 24? He says, This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? So true enjoyment comes from the hand of God. And God's amazing, isn't it? He's created each one of us to enjoy Him and enjoy His creation, even His fallen creation. 
that we have. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, he gives us all things richly to enjoy. So he's not only created me, Steve, but he's created all the things he knows I'll enjoy. Particularly like Mars ice cream, I don't know that is. Pie and mash, a romantic walk on the beach with my wife. Mere will be in Shotland every single time we play them. <laughs> Everything I enjoy is from the hands of gods. The Christian, though, isn't immune, are they, from the frustrations and pain and hardship of living in this world. Christians get divorced, they get made redundant, they suffer from mental health problems, they have misbehaving children, they die of cancer, they get COVID-19. Just like everyone else, we feel the pain and the pinch of this fallen world. It takes its toll on us. But the true Christian can truly look beyond this life, can't we? And we can gaze upwards to the life giver, the provider of true joy and fulfilment to our Lords and gods. And that's where we finish up in verse 26. The preacher says there's two ways to live. We can please God and find wisdom and knowledge and joy, knowing that life itself is a gift from Him. Or we can go the way of the sinner, that is simply the way that leaves God out. The person who refuses to trust and acknowledge their maker. And that person leaves with nothing, says the preacher, because whatever they've achieved, whatever they've acquired, is going to be snatched away at death and handed to someone else. Alright, fifth and final point then. The king of comfort. We've identified the root cause of the preacher's frustration, haven't we? His death. His pleasures can't last. The building he's made will one day crumble to dust. Weeds are going to take over his gardens. His concubines are going to get old and wrinkly. And his wisdom survives only as long as he does. And all of his handiwork, everything he's built, everything he's achieved, is going to be passed on to the next idiot. The preacher cannot escape death. But there is one verse in this passage that fills me with hope and a bit of joy. I don't know if you spot it. It's verse 12. It says this, What can a man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. This is a big problem for the preacher. He is just like any other king. He can only ever do what the king before him has done. And the king after him will only do what he's done. But actually, that should leave us with, uh, that should leave us with a reason to rejoice tonight. Because we know there is a king who's achieved something that no one else before or since has achieved. This king boldly goes where no one's gone before. This man, Jesus, this king who turns up and he lives a life of complete perfection. Never sinning, never putting a foot wrong. And then he's crucified on a cross. He's pronounced dead and they bury him in a tomb. But then what happens? Well, he does something no one else has done. He's back on the third day, resurrected. He, Christ, is the king who conquers death. And that's why Jesus, amidst this world that's full of disappointment 
and sadness and death. He's the only person in history who can offer you any genuine comfort. He is the king of comfort. Because Jesus promises that if your hope and trust is in him, then the darkness of the grave is not your final destination. It says in scripture, isn't it? Death, where is your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Well, look, friends, if your hope is in that king, King Jesus, our king, then the frustration we feel in this life, and whatever pain and frustration might await us in the future, well, it's only going to be temporary, isn't it? The king of comfort promises to raise us from the dead to life once more. And when we're raised to life, well, what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be a new and better Eden, isn't there? This world that's wicked and dying and frustrating, well, God's going to completely remove it. Everything that mars it is going to be wiped away. He's going to make all things new. And he's going to bring people like us back into a full relationship with him. We're in God's family now. We're in his, in his presence. But there we're going to see him face to face. That's what awaits all those who bow the knee to King Jesus. Well, look, do you know that King of Comfort this evening? Have you asked Jesus to forgive you for your sins? Don't delay. Let today be the day that you move from darkness into light, from despair into eternal joy, and from vanity 